right, here we go. Let's pray and let's go. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. O Lord God Almighty, who every year renews the face of the earth, and whose will it is to renew the world fallen into sin and death, grant, we beg you, that we may discern in your Son the dawning of true life, and in him share this new creation, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, so that was a good prayer. We'll get to do that in just a second. Um, you know, we were, we were keen on the 20th trying to get to the Bible Church and show you new stuff, but uh, so many eyes are looking at that thing. We couldn't get all the eyes on it before we, uh, we got there. And we want to try to have solid stuff, so we didn't want to come with half stuff. Uh, so we'll just postpone that 20th thing a little while. It'd be better to get it all the way into the shape we should get it into. So just, you know, kind of hold the 20th. But I'm struck more and more how, um, you know, what we've been trying to do in here is actually an application of what's being done in there. And there were a couple of uh, brilliant quotes in the bulletin today about beauty. One was um, from David Brown, the notion of a falcon who's lured into more than he expects. I would guess that for every one of you who are Christian, uh, I would just suggest to you that you probably got more than you bargained for. And if you didn't, uh, I would reverse the question and say, um, I wouldn't say you weren't Christian, but I would at least pose the question of what kind of Jesus you've got. Um, I think one thing, and I'm trying to, I'm always trying to figure out where the congregation is. Um, in terms of, of its maturity and what it can bear and what I should expect and how I should care for it and what, uh, what I should be doing and, and all those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, that there's always, I just think we always need to be cognizant of, of this thing as a growing organism and you all as individuals who are moving, you know, through life and you're going to have sort of ups and downs and you're going to have places where uh, you plateau a bit and then you're going to have bursts of energy. But I, I'm always, the most important thing, like all other things in life, is to stay with it. And so that, that notion of being lured into something, part of what happens on Sunday morning is you're lured back to what uh, you may not naturally seek. And, and, you know, what we naturally seek is ourselves, and what is unnatural for us to do is to think about God and our neighbor. And so, you know, that makes our lives difficult, this constant... Refrain, and, and what happens is you kind of get in adolescence as a Christian where you, you know, you, you kind of know, it's like adolescent kids, they kind of know what the right thing is, but they can't quite, they can't quite say it. If you ask them, you know, they know they should be in on time and hang out with the right kind of friends and obey their parents, but can they do it? Ooh, it's a little tough. It takes, you know, 10 or 15 years before they actually figure that out. Christians are the same way, and we have to, um, we have to remember that there's just so much in just the doing of it. But beauty is one of those things that can constantly lure you in, or allure you is probably better, uh, that lures you back to the things that are most important, even when uh, you don't recognize it. And see, that's part of the thing about the liturgy or the ritual, part of ritual. Um, everybody everywhere in all the world has ritual. Even people who don't claim they don't have rituals have rituals. You just have to watch them for about a day. You know, everybody everywhere has got them. It's just what kind of ritual gets you to where Jesus wants you to go. Well, if you can, uh, if you can make those things beautiful, uh, it inspires, it evokes, it provokes, it moves, it changes, it lures. It does all sorts of things for you. 
So um, I thought it was very interesting how this prayer, you know, you're the dawning of the new life and, and we share in the new creation. You know, grant us who have fallen into sin and death, grant us, we beg you, to discern your son, which is exactly what the reading in the gospel was for today. That you can actually discern where goodness lies, that you can discern where beauty is. Um, there was also the very nice thing at the beginning of the bulletin, the welcome, where N.T. Wright bids you. He's the Bishop of Durham. Uh, he's sort of, he's considered now sort of this generation's C.S. Lewis. He's the great apologist for the faith, uh, Bishop N.T. Wright at Durham. And it's very interesting, you know, uh, it's very interesting the things he sets off. Like he says, you know, you would settle for, for, for pleasure rather than joy. Um, and, and among the things he says, you know, we should be looking for is beauty. Well, that makes complete sense if you can understand, uh, you know, that beauty is this incarnational presence of God, which is what the Old Testament word for beauty means. It's the incarnational presence for God. And so today, I, it was striking in the gospel today, um, must have been around verse 25 or 26, where uh, it says that the, you know, Jesus sort of says of his disciples, didn't you know that I would need to pass through this suffering in order to move on to glory. So it's very, um, you know, his glory, his holiness, his heavenly holiness, his heavenly holiness that comes to earth, and his suffering are interconnected. And then that begins to become the answer of how we can ever see the crucifix, which we tend to hang in all our churches. The Tzeik, you know, crucifix is back on the banner right there. Um, how, how can it be that that is the most beautiful image you've ever seen? Or that just horrible, shocking thing we've been looking at the past couple of weeks, you know? How can that be described as beauty? And um, one, of the, one of the great arguments against that, and, and I've heard a range of lectures and read a bunch of stuff on this, one of the great arguments against that is that then it's almost there's some sort of uh, masochistic understanding of the cross where, uh, you know, suffering becomes the thing, you know, sought, to, sought after. Well, not exactly. Um, think back when you were a child. Uh, if you had uh, a choir master who told you you couldn't sing, that was probably the end of your singing. And if you had, uh, if you had an English teacher who, couldn't, you, who said you couldn't write poetry, um, that was probably the end of your poetry writing. And uh, see, sort of the first impulse, the first, if you, had a, if, you had a, if you had a father who told you you were wonderful and you were strong, um, you likely turned out wonderful and strong. Your first reading on things is often the reading that carries you through your whole life. Um, so here's the question. The cross of Christ, if you see all the world and then you see the cross of Christ. You say, my, isn't that a horrible thing? That looks just like every other incidence of injustice and vengeance and suffering. So if the cross of Christ is the second thing that you see, it is extraordinarily difficult to make sense of it. But if, in fact, the cross of Christ is the first thing that you see, and we, when you are introduced to the cross of Christ, what you see is a paradigm for how the cosmos works. If you can understand 
that this blue note, this thing that you think is out of tune, is in fact the most tuneful thing that ever existed. Then you begin to see the world in a completely different way. If you'd spin your Bible open um, to 1 Corinthians, that's actually what's going on there, and Paul faces the same thing. Um, in 1 Corinthians uh, you know, 1 or 2, I, I kind of use my Bible the way I drive, which is by feel, and so I, I know it's there somewhere. It's been the thing that's kept me from changing the Bible for so long. Um, um, you know, look around in 1 Corinthians 1, actually. Okay, just, just... I will. I thought I was yelling at you. Uh, is that better like that? Yeah. All right. I'm very sorry. I always, I always... When we read the gospel and I go into the middle... I oh, and I stand under that thing. I always feel like I am absolutely screaming at you, and I'm thinking, you know, I I I grew up with pastors who screamed at me for most of my young life, and um, you know, so I vowed never to scream at you. And sometimes I compensate the other direction, so I wouldn't um, I wouldn't want to be be yelling at you. Uh, but thank you very much for saying so. All right, so have a look at First Corinthians one um, eighteen. Okay, so if the first thing you ever see, if you see the world first, I mean, just think about, we're going to read this in a second, but just think about the world this way. If you see the world first, if you're a Greek, and then you stumble on a crucifixion, you see, uh, you see that as sort of bottom of the barrel, out of step, unfortunate stuff. Um, or if, you, if you're a Jew who sees that as, as a great humiliation, you know, you're just sort of, you can't quite process that. And that's what Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly to people who are perishing. For people who look at the world and then look at the cross, what they say is, that's stupid. That's what I'm trying to avoid. It's just, it's just the reaction of our original sin. It's just what we naturally, it's how we naturally talk. That's, the, that's what I'm trying to avoid. That, that is not where I want to end up, naturally. See, that's the word of the cross is a folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, that up there is the power of God. We're having, as I told you, you know, we're trying to, trying to work through this notion of whether we have a cross and then if we have a body on the cross, if we have a body on the cross, what kind of body we have on the cross and what exactly that means and what's the most helpful thing for you in this particular circumstance in the city where you live, at the altar where you worship, what should that look like, what should that be, you know, cross after cross, you know, we're having a go at, um, with the full knowledge that people walk in and see that as a folly. So obviously what you want to do is you want to create a thing that lures, uh, as Brown says, that allures you into more than you could ever predict, right? So the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, that's the power of God. You want to see God? Look right there. That's the power of God. On the cross, nailed to the cross. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, which means your wisdom doesn't get to be in first place. One of the great nervousnesses I have about the church, this church is, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out pastorally what to do about it, um, we've gotten to a place that may be too comfortable. And, um, you know, as you say in Iowa, where I grew up, you dance with who brung you. And, uh, you know, 
what that means in practical, you know, how did we get this far? We got this far with a great emphasis on everybody being in church every week and receiving the supper, everybody saying their prayers, everybody having Christ first, right? Everybody reading their scriptures and having family devotions, everybody giving generously, everybody um, being a, a, a good witness to those around them, and everybody being merciful. That's how we got to where we are. You know, even if we weren't always perfect in those things, those were the things we sort of held up. How did we get to where we are? Acts of mercy, words of witness, care of the soul. That's how we got to where we are. The great danger, you see, is when you get comfortable at the place you are as a Christian, um, you no longer see the necessity of what's hanging on the wall up there for yourself or especially for other people. And, and comfort is probably... Uh, the opposite of the gospel in some sense. In some sense, if that's the glory of God, then comfort is antichrist in some sense. I just, I, I need you to understand that properly. That doesn't mean that you should always be in pain or always be in suffering, but it does mean that comfort is not the litmus test for what it is that you and I do. If comfort is the litmus test for what you and I do, then we're looking at the world first and the cross second, and that's exactly what Paul warns against. When modern churches refuse to put a cross in their sanctuary because it makes people uncomfortable, when people transfer churches because what's read from the scriptures makes them uncomfortable, that's a faithless move. See, when churches don't have crosses, that's a faithless move because they're delivering less. In fact, they're not delivering the primary thing, the central thing in all Christianity. See, that's why on the altar, the only thing that goes on the altar is either the body and blood of Jesus in the Eucharist or a crucifix that marks the body and blood of Jesus in the Eucharist or a book in which the words are written about the body and blood of Jesus in his life and in the Eucharist. Those are the only three things that are really fit to go on the altar. Nothing else goes there. Obviously, the linens are shrouds for his burial. The crosses are dug in because they talk about the body and blood. But if it doesn't scream body and blood, that's why you don't you know, put the offering baskets on the altar. That's why you don't put flowers on the altar. Um, Occasionally, you might see candles on the altar only because it was nighttime when he was betrayed, and the candles mark that, uh, that word from the scripture, you see. So one has to be careful about, there, there is this fine line of, of, you know, we don't sort of engage suffering for suffering's sake. On the other hand, when, pe when we get too comfortable, you're always sort of asking yourself, um, am I sort of sticking with the stuff? Was there a hand over here? Yes, please. Early, early. So the question is, when did the crucifix with Christ on the church come in, uh, come into the church? The answer is early, early. If you walk through the catacombs inscribed on the wall, uh, is Christ on the cross? Uh, so the catacombs are where, where they hung out, where Christians hung out, you know, below their underground caves where they buried people and they had secret services while they were still persecuted. So you're in the first couple centuries. The earliest graffiti, known graffiti of 
<clears throat> in fact, I think I've given you this before, of, of um, making fun of Christians is a picture of Jesus on the cross with a donkey's head, and in, underneath it says, uh, what was the guy's name? It's something like Justin's God is an ass, is how it translates, you know? But even, it cuts both ways. So it was not only early, early in the church, but people who were making fun of them, it was early, early in the church. That's a first century graffiti, I think. I think I have. I'll give you a picture of that if you want. Here's a thesis to test about that. The, the comment was, and it's a helpful comment, um, was that an empty cross is a more hopeful and is often quoted as a resurrection sort of cross. Here's the thing. Here's a thesis for you to test if you want to write a master's in theology. Here's my gambit. My gambit is the body disappeared from the cross the same time the body disappeared from the supper. So here's my guess. My guess is that if I were guessing, I'm not proving, I'm guessing. Here's my thesis that the body was on the cross until the 16th century. And then when people began to deny the real presence in the sacrament, the body came off the cross. That would be my guess. So my guess is, well, I'm not saying that you're wrong. My guess is that um, it's not the reason it came off. Uh, it's a, I, think that's a, I don't believe that that is the reason it came off. I think it's a different reason that it came off. I think it came off to separate the notion that Jesus is really trapped up in heaven and not here. And see, the reason we put it back on is to say, Actually, he's not trapped up in heaven. He's going to be in the chalice that's up there in about an hour. So I think it's a, it answers a different question. You're not wrong. I just think it answers a different question primarily. So it would be a thesis to test, you know. We'd, we could look through some art books together and see. Um, you know, sort of keep, kind of keep reading here. If you've got 1 Corinthians 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of the clever, I will thwart. So what you're hoping for is that um, the first thing that you see is Christ on the cross and that that defines how you see the rest of the world. I think I spoke to you once about how, uh, looking through, um, you know, one of the great joys of being a pastor is to, is to obscure you uh, at the point of the elevation and not be able to see you and only be able to see the host. Now, I know that you're on the other side, but what I remind myself is that I look at you through the host. I see you through the host, and I beg you, pray. You know, I, I beg you, I pray that you see me through the host as well, which is to see me forgiven. The cross is very much the same thing. You know, what I pray is that you see me through the cross, that the, cr the cross is the prism that bends the light of all the world and all, 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 all the life that you engage. You know, if you can see each other in the cross... Um, that would be a very, very good thing. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. See, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? You know, where's the, where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God 
through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So it takes the cross and he puts it into words and he puts it into your ear and that saves you, which for most people is ludicrous, which is why so often what passes for Christianity is just self-help because it looks the same. It looks like a guy talking. But of course, my words will never save you. You know, it's only the Lord's words through me that would save you. And your words to another person will never save them. It's only Christ's words through you to another person that would save them. Okay, so it's very, very important. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. Crucified means body on the cross. Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, a folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, I will, uh, to sort of go with Bruce's point, I am also you know, well aware that Romans begins by talking as the resurrection is the confirmation of the hope that we've been given. You know, I understand that. Um, that's just my continuing bidding to you to please not pull apart crucifixion and resurrection. And I would just suggest to you that with a body on the cross, such things are not pulled apart because the body that you see dead hanging on the cross, um, is it, are his eyes closed? I can't remember. I think they are on that one. The body that you see dead hanging on the cross, that same body is alive in the chalice. So you have, or, or the, 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 that, that same body is alive on the patent. You have Good Friday and Easter held together when you have all those elements. So just, just kind of think about your life in that way. Um, if you can begin to think about... Can you hand these out for me? If you can begin to think about... Jonathan, can you help me? Uh, if you can begin to think about Christ at the first point and not at the last point, you'll be so much better off. So I had just a very little bit to clean up. If you were kind of following on the outline, I mean, sometimes I've been known to move off the outline, but... Um, as you're getting those, you remember. I'm just going to read point number nine from the outline you've had for a couple of times. I should probably let you get those. Or you, you know, you'll be, you'll be working on other things. What I've, what I've been trying to suggest to you is that the crucifixion is the most beautiful thing that ever happened. And, and that's what I suggested last week. And what I'm suggesting to you today is not only is the crucifixion the most beautiful thing that ever happened, but it is the paradigm by which we see all life. It is the lens or the glass through which we see everything around us. And, you know, you, there's really only about two choices, says Paul. You'll either have the crucifix first, and then life will be um, full and hopeful from the church's perspective, or you won't have the crucifix first, and then the church will seem like madness. It'll be an embarrassment. It'll be a joyless experience. And, and the, answer, the answer to all of that is the only way you know that is this repeated exposure, repeated exposure, repeated exposure, and that's where we need to be. So I'm just going to read you. You may or may not have the one from last week, but I, was, I ended with point number nine saying this. Try this. The crucifixion is the most beautiful thing that ever happened. Why? Because Christ's beauty is his love. And his love leads into death, and his death forgives us and reforms us, so that his beauty is greater than all men. Or, his love changes shame and ugliness 
to something that is offensively beautiful. I mean, I wonder if you, I wonder if you and I can become, become the, the kind of... I wonder if you and I can become the kind of Christians who can be offensive and beautiful at the same time. If you think about Jesus, Jesus was offensive and beautiful at the same time. Think about Jesus when he went to dinner and there were both Pharisees there and there were sinners there. The same Jesus, he is who he is. To the Pharisees, he was completely offensive. He was off-putting to them. Okay, they just... He, he made the Pharisees cranky almost every time he ran into them. And that very same Jesus, when he turned the other way, sinners felt warm and welcome. You know, how is that? How can the same Jesus, at the same time, in the same story, without even saying anything, just by being present, why does one person feel completely put off, and why does another person feel more love than they've ever been loved. Take the woman who anointed his feet, for example. Well, and I wonder if you... See, there's an integrity there in Jesus' being that the Pharisees realize that he won't capitulate, and so they harden their hearts against him. But in his being, which is composed of love, those who are sinful and outcast have never felt anything like that. That's the sort of person... That's a sort of beautiful and offensive person you're meant to be when you go out into the world. You know, we err probably a little bit more on the offensive side than on the beautiful side. So, you know, hopefully what could happen here is that, um, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, being a Christian is just about the imitation of Jesus and letting the chips fall where they fall. That's that, at the end of the day, that's what it is. You're drawn into a particular life and you live that particular life and you live it with discipline and some days it's better and some days it's worse and it's always forgiven, but that's what it is. Right. Yes. The, 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 the cantor says you just, you just try to be true. So, and you, you do what's true or you know what's true by repeating, and repeating the words that Jesus gives you to say and doing the things he gives you to do starting with his crucifixion. So, you know, he loves us not so that we'll love him back, but we learn to love other people. And so I gave you this, you know, think about the mystical union, not in theory, but in fact. Um, if you're blind to love, this is the last thing on the last sheet, if you're blind to love, you end up very much like those persecutors in the picture. They just are going about their business, and he's just another guy who needs to be hung up. But if you're not blind to love, everything changes. And, you know, what I'm suggesting to you is um, in the Eucharist, in your baptism, in the crucifix, in the scriptures, those are the places. And frankly, in each other. When we are, as Luther says, when we're little Christ to each other, that's where you, um, that's where you find love. Okay, just anything about that? So, okay, yes, Mr. Marcus. I think uh, <clears throat> my view is uh, Christ first, first Christ. That's right. Just 
That's right. If I could sum up what you said, uh, you know, what you said was um, you, sort, you sort of move into the world, and, and um, if the cross comes first, everything sort of falls down. But um, if the cross doesn't come first, then there's always disappointment. Things didn't quite work out how you wanted. Your kids didn't quite turn out. Your job wasn't quite. You weren't quite. You didn't quite have. It didn't quite go, right? But if the cross comes first, if that's what's important, then you know the world works out. So the cross is not an encouragement you see to ugliness or vengeance or violence. The cross is an encouragement to live the life that Christ buys back for you and gives to you as a gift. The reason Jesus hangs on the cross once for all is so nobody else ever has to do it. That's not the imitation. Now, that will come to you. I mean, suffering does come because the world is still a sinful world, but that's not what you're aiming at. As I've said many times to you, you don't need to seek martyrdom or seek evil. It'll find you. Believe me, you know, the craziest thing, you know, ever is the, you know, is the, is the, the little, little um, cinch from the Da Vinci Code, you know, that people tighten to make themselves bleed and just remind themselves that they're sinners. You might as well just turn all those in at the door because uh, stuff is going to find you. You know, it just will. The world is a big place and it's pretty tough and stuff is just going to find you. And if you really want it to find you, try loving some people because then it'll find you for sure. Love your friends, love your wife, love your kids, love your job, love the world, it'll bite back. Because it's a corrupted place. But knowing that it bites back, you begin to see everything in terms of forgiveness. And then you see your natural response. When the world bites you, your natural response is to retaliate. But if you see the world through the cross, and you always see the possibility for beauty, and there's always the possibility for hope. There's always the possibility of resurrection. For example, Pastor Nelson, who's from Wisconsin, picked Wisconsin to win the national championship. And we pointed out to him that they didn't go very far, and then he replied by saying, I believe in the resurrection. <laughs> now, we're going to help him understand how that's not apropos, but... You know, at least he sees the whole world in this particular way. It's very nice. See. And ultimately, you know, that love finds itself in incarnation. So I gave you, you know, the Romans text is about as good as it gets for, I gave you um, under point three there, the Romans text from Romans 5. Um, you know, while we were still weak, while you were still icky, you know, me too. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Right? This is just this goes so well with First Corinthians. Hey, there's hardly anybody who'll die for a righteous man. Nobody'll die for a righteous man. Sometimes a good man will dare to die for a friend. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Incarnational beauty. While we were still sinners. I mean, it is amazing that Jesus gives Jesus, Jesus lets the heart, Jesus is the one who gives strength to the hearts beating in those who nail him to the cross. That is a very remarkable thing. He keeps them alive long enough that they can kill him. He refuses to slay him even as they slay him. He refuses to slay them even as they slay him. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we're justified by his blood. 
and save from the wrath of God. So, um, I guess, uh, you know, what, and I guess, I think the next place I want to go is, you know, not today, but in the future is, you know, beauty bids a particular kind of life from you. I mean, the Christian life is really meant to be a beautiful life. It's meant to be a beautiful life in how we speak of other people. It's meant to be a beautiful life in how we treat each other. It means to be a beautiful life in how we engage the world. It means to be a beautiful life in how we hope for the future. Where beauty for all of those things is defined by the body and blood of Jesus. You know, that's what the church is meant to be. It's not particularly complicated. And real honestly, um, you know, why do churches that are real churches grow? I mean, you can make a church grow. Anybody can make anything grow. I mean, if we give out $100 bills, we can double our attendance next week. It's easy to make things grow. That's not, but can you make them grow in the way of Christ? Or that's not even a good way to speak. Can they be grown in the way of Christ? Which is this disciplined reception of his gifts that always flow from the cross. That's why in those, uh, the, one, the one crucifixion scene I didn't, but regularly you've seen this, the one I didn't choose to show you, uh, regularly when Jesus is pierced, you'll see um, his blood shooting off into a chalice from, from the cross. It's not uncommon in artwork for him to have a pierce on the side and it shoots right into the chalice. Why is that? There's your life. You'll find it in the chalice. So point four, if this beauty, this love incarnationally located in flesh and blood on the cross and the altar is meant for everyone, then, this is very important, difficulty, disfigurement, or deformity can be hiding a hidden beauty, an inner beauty that is radiating from within, and so reveal a beauty that is more than physical. Here's the thing. If this can be beautiful, if that can be beautiful, then we completely need to reorient our notion of what beauty is. It, frankly, is not America's next top model. You know, that's not beauty. You know, that's not beauty. And here's the question for you. There's every chance that beauty is over at the county home with people who are very troubled. There's every chance that beauty radiates from people who are disabled in some way. It's the way that we can speak of a beautiful death because we know that we begin to see people through the cross. And whatever uh, is seen through the cross is forgiven. And so whatever is forgiven is beautiful. And then you see, it's just a natural, the next natural step, step is to help people who are poor, or to help people who are hungry, or to help people who are disabled, or to help people who are struggling in any way, which is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 26. You did it to other people, you did it to me. Jesus is in the stranger. And it's a beautiful thing to engage them. Even martyrs, and you know, sometimes people wonder why you know, we have martyrs or pictures of martyrs. I mean, there's old Luther over there. He didn't, he didn't quite get killed. I wonder if that bothered him. That might be a thing to ask him. He made it all the way to the end. In 1546, both the Pope and the Emperor said, you know, any man who kills Luther is a friend of both Pope and Emperor. That would be like saying any man who kills Luther is a friend of both McCain and Hillary and Barack. It'd be like that. It'd be like well, the one thing we could all agree on. You, kill, you know, that's, that's, that's what it was like. Poor guy. You know. 
So we can look at people who are suffering. We can look at people who are disfigured. We can look at people who've been tortured. We can look at these things and we can see beauty in them, not because they are inherently beautiful, but because they've been redeemed, because there's the possibility for redemption, because we see a thing that is deeper than what is physical. So now you kind of have to shift gears. Of course, we've talked about what's physically beautiful. We try to have things that are physically beautiful, stained glass or altarware, or we look at the sky or we see people, or we, we do love it, of course. I mean, don't misunderstand me. We do love it when people are whole, when children are born and all is well. You know, I think um, part of what we're praying for this morning is a, is a mom who had an early C-section of twins and one of them died. You know, this is, this, is a great, this is a great sadness. So in some ways you can see that, but of course we'd never wish for that, hope for that. That's not where we want to go. And yet that is what we engage in life. So we hope that everybody is put together and everything works, and we hope that people don't die. That's what we hope for. But we never met anybody like that. Not even Jesus. He died. Real death. But of course the hope lies beyond that. So um, that's what we're aiming at. Um, you might just begin to think about how this notion of beauty might reorder your world then. That anything seen through the cross, anything redeemed, becomes beautiful. People, things, creation. And here's the other side of that. You can only do that if you're regularly, regularly strengthened at altar, pulpit, and font. The only way you can walk out into a world, and I'll just tell you, here's the thing, just read the newspaper today. Sit down and read, take four hours and read every article in the newspaper. It'll, it'll wanna, it'll, you know, you'll want to do yourself in by the end of that. If you read every article, unless you can begin to see that as fertile ground for redemption, unless you can begin to see those people struggling so much as those whom Christ loves and you might help, and then the world becomes hopeful. And that's what the church is supposed to be. And part of the reason you, you know, this all goes back to because we're trying to figure out what to do next door. Now that's what's before us. Part of what we need to do is create a beautiful space that strengthens you for that. And there's a way that you can do that. Things done well and things done beautifully are powerful and they help you live the life that you're meant to live. So um, the Lord gives you gifts in all sorts of ways. All right, let's pray and go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, thanks. See you next week.